from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. I am so glad you're here to listen in on a conversation, the conversation we have every week, exploring all those things related to work and the rest of your life, your your family, your community, our society, and your private self, your mind, your body, your spirit. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. If you visit totalleadership.org, you can find all kinds of free information about how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. Yes, it's possible. We've proven it. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on SiriusXM Channel 132. You can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. I'm at Stu Friedman. Well, my guest today is a longtime advocate for working parents, gender equality in the workplace, and has spent a good part of the pandemic focused on helping parents cope with work and childcare in the quarantine, also helping businesses figure out how to get people back in to what our new reality is going to be. Lauren Smith Brody is the founder of the Fifth Trimester. It's a movement. And it's a consulting company, and she's the author of the best-selling book, The Fifth Trimester, The Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity, and Success After Baby. Lauren, welcome to Work and Life. Thanks. Thanks, Stu. I was having to mute my cheering when you were talking about your mission at the top. It's awesome. Well, uh, it's, it's great to have you here. Let, let me just offer a bit of background to our listeners about you before we jump into our conversation. Lauren's book, The Fifth Trimester was a simultaneous bestseller in the Amazon categories of motherhood, women in business, and cultural anthropology. It is the first book to have ever accomplished that. I'm just saying that (laughs) because it has to be true. She's, She's been a featured speaker at companies and organizations, including Amazon, Sony, Facebook, and tons of others. Um, She's a great writer and writes regularly about the intersection of business and motherhood for the New York Times, Slate, L and others. She's also on the board of the early education nonprofit Docs for Tots. She's a longtime leader in the women's magazine industry. Brody was previously the executive editor of Glamour magazine. So actually, this hour is going to be spent on improving my style quotient. Lauren, can you help me with that? I'm, I, I have no pithy response. <laughs> no, there's, there's no way you can help me with that. There's I'm a, a lost, I'm a lost cause. Everybody knows that. research that actually shows that when you feel good about the way you look, that you project that and people treat you accordingly. However, yeah. I kind of like the big reset that has happened um, during the pandemic, which involved, um, you were just telling me that you had, you had just exercised. I worked out this morning, took the quickest shower, didn't dry my hair. And just attended a White House um, briefing in jeans, which like when uh, this is our new normal and I'm, I'm here for it. Well, that's uh, that's a big part of what I want to talk with you about. Um, I also want to mention that you are a distinguished alumna of the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, we always like to have our alumni on the show. So welcome back home. I'm not sure I'm that distinguished, but I take it to meet my husband. So that helped. <laughs> All right, whatever. I'm glad you're here. Uh, the fifth trimester, well, it's a time when uh, moms often come back to work 12 weeks after the birth of their child. Um, your story at the beginning of your book is really so uh, compelling and funny and real. Uh, I wonder if you could give us just a, uh, a snippet of what inspired you to focus on that critical moment for for women for their children for their families for for our economy when as you say the working mom is is born as she tries to manage both motherhood and her career sure thank you um so i had both of my boys when i was working at glamour magazine they are now 9 and 12 and when i was pregnant with my eldest will there was i was hungry for information and like so many um young parents i really professionalized being pregnant i was i was moving up in my career but i also wanted to know 
exactly how many ounces of what kind of fish I could eat safely. And, and I, I just approached it the way I had my job, frankly. And there was a lot of information available for me in those first three trimesters. And then I learned, oh my goodness, sorry, this is the joy of, of being in a pandemic is that I think my dog has an ear infection. And so she's shaking and that's the noise you just heard. Okay. Um, good to know. She's, she's been a real comfort to us at this time. Uh, anyway, so um, I learned about what was called the fourth trimester after I had my son and um, Dr. Harvey Karp, who is the author of a book called The Happiest Baby on the Block and the founder of SNU, which has really revolutionized new parents sleep, introduced me to the idea that human babies are actually born a whole trimester earlier developmentally than other mammals. And so I thought, okay, all right. And there's a lot of information about that. And then it was time to go back to work. And I had 12 weeks. I was able to take some of that paid on disability, some of it as FMLA. And I knew even then that I had- FMLA was the Family Medical Leave Act that uh, President Bill Clinton signed into law as his first uh, executive action back in 1993. And it gave 12 weeks, but it was unpaid. Exactly. And that is exactly where we still stand. And only something like 56 or 58% of American workers even have access to that unpaid leave. So far, fewer can actually afford to take it. Hopefully, we're about to see that improved upon, not totally to the degree that I'd like to see it improved upon, but it's coming. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, I knew that at the end of those 12 weeks, I was going to have to go back to work. And I did. And I was doing it from a level of some executive privilege at that point. And I also was lucky to work with a lot of women, uh, many of whom were moms and who welcomed conversations around new parenthood and things like pumping breast milk and things that, you know, were very physical needs that that I had back to work. And I found it sort of counterintuitively, although I was totally out of my depth, being a brand new working mom, and I really didn't know how to do it all, um, I found that sort of counterintuitively, it actually made me better at my job. I was a better manager. I was a better leader. I had learned the skills I needed to learn to do the job I was doing, but I hadn't really learned how to manage people. And by being really transparent about my own needs, um, suddenly I saw everybody around me more able to do the same, and it made us have more inspired work, be better at what we were doing. And I sort of filed that away. Um, So you what what you gleaned there, and this is something I emphasize a lot in my own work and teaching and writing, and that is to capture the value that you create in one part of your life, one role that you play and bring it to bear on the other parts. And, you know, the the classic example of that is when you become uh, a parent, you 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 change uh most of us do and and your perspective on the world and on your 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 place in it and what you can do to um make it better for other people it shifts uh you you develop a a new identity so that happened for you and you were able to bring that uh to your work as an executive at that time in the, uh, well, at Glamour, I, I presume, right? Yes. So, yeah. so can you say more about what that shift in identity, that identity sure. you know, adjustment was like for you and, and how, how indeed you brought it yeah. at work? So some of it was, was admittedly rough. Um, you put mm-hmm. it really so beautifully because once you've had a child, and this is the experience, you know, that I've heard repeated again and again in the, in the women that I've worked with over these years, once you've had a child, you want your work to have more meaning than it did before, because you are choosing to do it. You are choosing potentially to be away from your child, to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. You're doing it to role model for them, um, to make money for your family, um, mm-hmm. hopefully to do some good in the world. And, you know, whether you're doing, you know, social justice work, or you're doing something like, you know, like making widgets in a factory, you, you're doing the equation in your mind about what that's worth to you. And, um, and so everything sort of takes on this, this new, um, this new sort of patina to it. Um, anyway, so I found that it made, well, but me it's more than just a, a surface impression for you, right? It's, it's, yeah, it, it cuts into, as you were saying just now, uh, your purpose, right? For Absolutely. for being a part of the uh, the economy, you know, outside of the nest, yeah. uh, you 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 become more conscious of the choices you're making about why you're doing what you're doing. And you're seen as, for better and for worse, a working mom. Mm. So I knew even then that, you know, when I was negotiating a contract with a writer and what I could pay that person, or Mm. when I was negotiating for myself in terms of how many nights I was going to be working late, that I was doing it 
not just, and I don't know that I was so conscious about understanding this. It's hard to remember what I knew then versus what I've learned now in my mm-hmm. new work. But mm-hmm. I knew that I wasn't just negotiating for something around me and my personal life. I was negotiating around a bigger cause and to help really other parents feel like they could be as transparent about their needs as they wanted to be. And that, that really was the genesis for, for my desire to research the return to work after baby, to call it the fifth trimester. My first, the first thing I did for my business was trademark that term. And I'm so glad I did. Um, and then that, that really got the ball rolling. And I, after my second child went through it again, gleaned more sort of from the experience and was able to look more broadly beyond just my admittedly privileged return to work, um, in a very supportive environment with a supportive partner and, you know, parents who had just retired and who could help out if I needed and, uh, left glamour to do this research and, um, looked at, did a big national survey, um, and then did much deeper, you know, hour long interviews with more than a hundred moms, um, and put that all together to start connecting the dots about the experience of returning to work after baby and what worked in our favor and what worked against us. And how could we all be a collective working mom mentor for each other mm-hmm. absence, absent the social and policy support that we really all deserved. And how could we sort of externalize um, some of the factors that we had been taught culturally were our own fault or that it was too hard or we should feel guilty. And how could we look at sort of the the root cause for a lot of those feelings, realize how common they were, and then Mm -hmm. work together either as a collective block or individually as new parents in our own workplaces to change culture. Yes, yes. Um, I often cite uh, the sociologist Caitlin Collins. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work. Uh, She's been on the show. Mm -hmm. Um, Her cross-national study of of new mothers where she uh, she did uh, in-depth analysis of how new new working mothers feel in the United States and three countries in Europe. Mm -hmm. And the, the stark and, you know, terribly true finding was exactly what you observed that American mothers attribute their failures, quote unquote, to be able to, you know, provide what they, what they have to the, the enormous amount of, you know, resources and support for their, for their families and their children. Uh, They attribute their uh, frustrations and not being able to fully do that to themselves. Whereas in Europe, women make a different attribution. It is the responsibility they feel and they believe right. they think uh, of, of this, of society to provide that. Right. And yes, we are getting closer. We are getting closer. And uh, our president's uh, uh, words to Congress last night are a step further in the direction we want to go. So you found, and this is now some years ago, uh, uh, that this was a problem for 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 working mothers, and you helped to create a space for them to uh, to to form some collective power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and to be totally honest with you, you know, I'm not I wasn't a naturally built entrepreneur. Like I'm someone who worked in magazines. There was a masthead at the front that showed me how I could move up, and you know who was senior to me and who was junior to me, and and so that took some mm-hmm. real. Um, uh, it, it, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm a rule follower by nature. And it, and it took some sort of fighting within myself to figure out like, how do I, how do I use the situation that we're in to inspire me to do this work, to get out of my comfort zone, to invest in a business that's just my own. Um, and that, that journey is sort of such a trendy word right now, but you know, the last five years of building this business have been incredibly meaningful and, have helped me have impact that goes far beyond what I felt like I was able to do in my former career. Let me remind listeners, uh, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and my guest today is Lauren Smith Brody. She's the founder of the Fifth Trimester Movement and Consulting, which advocates for working parents. Uh, So uh, your journey (laughs) to mompreneur... Do oh, I, I hate that, right? that word. Do I hate oh, I, that word? I'm using it only because you hate it, Lauren. And, as, <laughs> and I know that because you said that in your book or words to that effect. Yes, yes. I'm just, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I'm no, it's just, fine. I'm it's just, fine. I'm just playing. No, but you, you, what is it that your organization does now? 
So now I do too many things. So I am, um, I'm still a journalist. Um, I write, as you said, for a number of publications. And I do that because there are a lot of women in this mom entrepreneurial space who have great intentions and are super smart, um, but who don't necessarily know how to read a study and who don't know how to, you know, to look at data and use it to make progress. And so that's having that as my background, you know, when you look backwards at your career and you can connect the dots, like that's one thing I'm able to do from all those years of, of working with a fact-checking department and researchers. And so that that's helpful. So that's one piece of it. Um, I do have a coaching business that's fairly small because it's, it's just me. So I work with one law firm directly with all of their returning um, parents. And that's mm. been, uh, it's wonderful because I get to help them um, retain these people, but I also am learning all the time from their experiences in ways that I can apply to the biggest piece of what I do, which is speaking. I do a lot of speaking, webinars, um, a little consulting too, um, mostly offering companies and organizations ways to support their employees and helping them really make the case for, you know, putting resources behind supporting parents, which does absolutely pay off. Um, So I do a lot of webinars. Um, Some of that uh, before the pandemic, it was almost entirely about the return to work after baby. Since then, I had a real sort of, um, I've been able to really expand my reach. And I now um, offer lots of support for all parents and really actually all caregivers. So that can include people with elder care needs and responsibilities and people who are supporting their spouses and people who even need to take care of themselves. Um, I think self-care, you know, it's, it counts as FMLA, FMLA applies to self-care. It's like, I think 50% of people who apply for FMLA, it's to take care of themselves. Um, so it's helping businesses do a better job of supporting our humanity and our needs around that to get the best work out of people. So your study, the, the initial um, research that you did, give us the headlines for, of what came out of that uh, <laughs> and that's still... Um, that you use now in your work uh, today? It's a great question. So the two biggest headlines were about really synced up with the medical studies. Um, The, I surveyed almost 800 um, new moms and they told me that they were feeling, I asked them when they started to feel better emotionally and more even keeled. And when they started to feel better physically, um, and that wasn't like back in their old genes, that was like comfortable in their own skin again. And both of those numbers were right around the six month mark. And when you look back at all of the research, and in fact, all of the research that, um, I wonder if Bill, if President Clinton had seen when he signed FMLA into law, um, it all really coalesces around that six month mark. And when you look at even the business case for what for how much paid leave people need, and it does need to be paid, that's a really big asterisk there. Of course, um, it's six to nine months. After nine months, you could see some sort of career regression, but that's sort of the sweet spot. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. It meant to me that I was getting a good, um, a good sample, a good representative, um, you know, sort of sample of, of American women who I was hearing from. Um, so yeah. what happens at that six month part, that point that is, sure. that is important for not just parents, but for businesses to know people, mothers feel differently about themselves. What, so what do you mean a- by that? Well, it's, it's hard to un, un, un sort of braid what's happening with mom versus what's happening with baby. So a six month old baby is going to be, and I, and I do not want to shame anyone who has to leave their baby in someone's care earlier than six months. I know I certainly did, but a six month old baby is going to be safer in a childcare situation. A six month old baby who has had a parent home or caregiver home with them on paid leave is more likely to have been vaccinated. Um, the women who answered my survey said that I asked them, when did you start sleeping? Um, not when did your baby start sleeping through the night? Because culturally that has all kinds of different definitions, but when did you mom start getting a total of seven hours of sleep per night? That was on average at the 7.1 post months, postpartum mark. So all of these things, baby is starting to sit up at six months, take solid food at six months. The American pediatric association recommends that babies only get breast milk until six months. It also recommends, and this just blows my mind that babies sleep in the same room as a parent until a minimum of six months, but really more like a year. So if nobody's sleeping yet and you're all in that same room together and you're supposed to be feeding baby this, this milk only you can see why six months starts to be the point at which it might be physically and emotionally more manageable for a parent to go back to work. Right. Okay. Uh, I should say it's all, it all, it's all work. So, so that was an important finding. Yeah. And you were about to tell us about the other one. 
the sleep was the other one was just that, you know, so, so much of, so much of what we need in terms of our ability to focus and, um, to prioritize and to communicate effectively is dramatically impacted by sleep. And I've done some research, um, for other stories I've done, um, after the book was published, in which I interviewed a couple of just amazing experts about um, who's, who are PhDs who study um, the impact of maternal sleep in, in the family. One of them also has a, a side gig as a who she studies um, the use of sleep deprivation as a as a weapon of war. And so she she mm-hmm. really like she gets that Venn diagram. And uh, you know so much of what they taught me about what it means to to miss sleep. It, it just, it, it is so, it brings back all kinds of flashback, horrible memories of being a new parent. You know, they said to me that if you are going to work at 9am after two nights of bad sleep and bad sleep is defined as any night in which you didn't get at least a total of seven hours fragmented is okay, but where one of those fragments wasn't at least four hours, mm-hmm. um, that you're showing up at work as impaired as if you were drunk. Right. Um, so that I think is something that when employers hear that, they understand what drunk at 9 a.m. <laughs> the implications that that has on your business. Mm-hmm. So it's hard because I toe the line. I don't want to, um, I don't want to undersell the ability of of new parents, um, which is profound and amazing. And there's all kinds of brain development that happens, you know, in the postpartum time that actually, in many ways, wires up women for um, for efficiency and for success and for greater creativity and problem solving. That's really and empathy and well, yes, empathy, of course. And you know, it's funny, empathy. There's ways that my my thinking has evolved in in these these years since I published the book, and I used to shy away from talking about that a little bit because it felt like such a kind of soft female skill. And now I got to tell you, after this last administration and what we've been through and the reckoning that we've seen in our country with sexism, I am all for female skills. And so, like, bring it. If women are able to be more empathetic after having kids, great. Let's let's you know shout it from the rooftops. Yeah, I, I think we are well past the point where uh, vulnerability about one's actual life and uh, the capacity to take the leadership leap and see in you know yourself through the eyes and the hearts and minds of the people around you is uh, is seen as something that is uh, you know denigrated in corporate society, but rather is now elevated and lauded. Uh, and and train for yeah. uh, because we know how important uh, that kind of perspective is not everywhere uh, you know in, in the world of American capitalism but certainly so much more than when I first started out in this game over 30 years ago so how is that um, you know th- those observations how do you see those playing out in the work that you're doing with companies now give us just a yeah a minute or so on that. And then we're going to have to take a short break and we'll come back and, 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 and uh, uh, go further on what it okay. is that organizations need to be doing now. So all of that research that I was doing for years and that, and that many, you know, even more qualified people were doing for decades before that, that's our head start here because so much of what we know about supporting parents and about supporting the return to work after baby can be applied much more universally now as the private sector in America starts to go back to work. Um, back to work in in a, in a way that that we'd like to we'd like to to do it in a way that course corrects that makes some long overdue corrections that does prioritize things like you know flexibility and visibility of our personal life needs whether that's children or you know anyone else who depends on us um, and I think it's going to be I, I'm a little bit worried about a backlash for people who you know don't embrace that and, you know, some of the success that they've been able to enjoy in this time when many others of us have been chained to, you know, suddenly making three meals a day for our homeschooled children. Um, but I, I have a lot of hope for the progress that will come out of this time. And we have a ton of research to draw on and a lot of new moms who have experiences they can share that essentially help us all universally through what is now our fifth trimester for every working parent. What do you mean by that? Uh, it's, it's, you know, if it's the return to work, it is the, the wow. increased need for vulnerability 
and comfort with that and assumption that our employers will be comfortable with that too. Visibility into our personal life needs. This is not just like your kid showing up on the Zoom, um, which now needs to be more universally accepted, but you know, best practices around you know meetings like and being more flexible than, than we ever knew was possible before, but also being able to incorporate um, the needs of those kids in the things that you negotiate for um, in your, you know, in, in your, your conversations around salary, pay, equity, all of this stuff, um, ignoring kids, pretending that they, they didn't exist. That's no longer an option. Yay. Yay. Yeah. Because, uh, the ideal worker of, you know, the before times, uh, and I think still in the residual, you know, uh, memory that, 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 that many people hold is one of always on, always available and with no other commitments in life. And, and I'm with you that there's you know, the potential for a silver lining in a kind of reset of how we think about what it means to be uh, a full and active contributor to a business, to the economy, to whatever our non-family uh, commitments are, and that it's not about having no other life. It's about having a full life. And, and, and we need to realize that aspiration. We need to take a short break here, but don't go away. When we come back, I'll continue my conversation with Lauren Smith Brody about the fifth, trimen- the fifth trimester. Excuse me. I am Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. Really glad you're here. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I am the founder of Total Leadership, which is a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping individuals and organizations find harmony among the different parts of their lives that after uh, a long career as a Wharton professor since 1984. Oh, my goodness. My guest today is Lauren Smith Brody. She's the author of the best-selling book, The Fifth Trimester, and she's the founder of The Fifth Trimester Movement and Consulting, which supports working parents to foster gender equality in the workforce. But not every parent, when they become a parent, goes back to work after they've been working. Right, Lauren? No, they, they don't. And, you know, the goal of the work that I do is to is to allow parents the agency they need to make the best decisions for their own families. Yes. But if you can stay in, if you can stay in and make the changes that you need from within culturally, team by team and impact policy, wouldn't that be better? Like if you could keep getting paid. <laughs> so I'm all, I'm all for getting parents paid. And if that means that, you know, for instance, one of the lessons that came out of the pandemic was a lot of people were working really, really different hours and schedule. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I now say, look, if you're going to work a four day week, um, that doesn't necessarily mean you should be paid at 80% because let's look at actually your job description. Are you doing your full job description? I'm not talking about somebody who works shift work and who actually has to physically be present for those hours, but someone who ha- who may have perhaps gotten better at their job um, over time, gotten more efficient at it. If you're doing the whole job, let's get you paid for the whole job. So I think it's important to think about the, the push factors, the things that are pushing people out, the cost of childcare. There are ways to negotiate a lot of this stuff that might make staying in be more um, of an available option. And including then including value-based pay rather than time-based pay. And I know you Thank do some you. work yeah. with professional services companies and, yeah. and I know that there's a move, especially in the legal profession, the most yeah. Neanderthal among the professional services that I'm aware of in terms of their weddedness to the billable hour yeah. that, you know, there are many progressive uh, firms that are trying to move past the, you know, the hegemony of the clock to what value are, are you creating no matter when and how? Yeah. Um, or, that's or where. Yep, absolutely. And, and, you know, and the thing about law firms is they're so good at, they're so good at measuring things um, because of that, that they do try to keep up with each other. You know, my, my own business grew quite a bit when I was able to say to the law firms I was pitching, Hey, I've worked with X, Y, and Z. And then everybody else was like, Oh, we need you too. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, I'd say probably half my clients are law firms. 
Well, and that's likely because so many of the people in that sector are working mothers. And there's a huge attrition rate, you know, of, of, women of once, once you get to, to partnership. Yeah. Still. Still. Oh yeah. Yeah. It improves. It's improved, you know, a couple percentage points every year. Um, but they have, they have the numbers to back up the need. And so they're able, better able to put resources behind it than perhaps um, other sectors. Well, we're, we are seeing some progress on the policy front in terms of recognizing the economic value of what has been always in our society, an unpaid contribution by parents to uh, the care of their children. Um, and, and you write eloquently about the, the, that progress to the point of, you know, when you, when you publish and we are making uh, some renewed push in that direction in the current administration. Um, what does that say about, about, you know, our domestic lives and, and how mothers and fathers are thinking about, their plans for how they're going to organize their domestic economies, if you will, like within their homes in terms of who does what, who's creating real value. And, and, and is it, this is too many questions at once, but, so please okay. forgive me, but it, is it, is it a realistic prospect for us? Like during our lifetimes, perhaps during your lifetime to, to imagine that we would, you know, provide funds for parents to be the full-time caretakers of their children? Um, that last bit, I'm not sure how entirely realistic it, it is, um, at least with the culture that we have in the United States. But, you know, the whole premise of the work that I do is really is based on the idea that transitions are additive and that there are time to mm-hmm. make change that, that pushes us forward and makes progress. And so in many ways, you know, as a whole country right now, we are assessing this stuff and, you know, personally, just for, you know, anybody who's, who's in a, you know, dual income family structure right now, this is a really good time for a reset. Um, particularly if you have had to fall into more traditional gender roles than you might've liked. And please don't blame yourself for that. If you have, it's happened in a ton of families. We've seen all the statistics about women who've been pushed out or women taking more time to take on the remote schooling. This is not because you were actually secretly more, less progressive than you thought, or you'd like married the wrong person. This is because we're doing this in a context of the fact that if you're in a heterosexual couple, the man in the couple is probably better paid for the work that he does. So when you make decisions for your own little family, you've probably leaned into his work and perhaps away from your paid work and into more of your unpaid work if you're a woman. Um, That said, I do think it's also an incredible time to reset our definition of the value of domestic labor. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of that we can take care of in what's looking like is finally going to be the bailout that may happen for childcare. Um, There was Mm -hmm. a huge amount of money that Biden just pledged to um, uh, rebuild um, so much of what has gone wrong in our childcare industry, which is 80% minority led and has just suffered just terrible, terrible job losses, which of course the economic recovery for childcare is going to take longer than the overall economic recovery, but that gets really cyclical really fast. Cause if you're a mom who doesn't have dependable childcare, then how are you going to work effectively? Um, sorry, now I'm answering too many things all in that, but so. Well, and, and I'm going to just throw a, a public service announcement in here on this score how about if we invert the pay scales of bankers and childcare workers? Oh my God. And teachers, let's pay teachers, please. Let's pay teachers. Well, I meant childcare and educators. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So we just pay them what we pay bankers and we pay bankers what we pay childcare workers. What's wrong with that? Even if we did it for like a month. And so, you know, what? that's really interesting what you bring up because, you know, one thing that I have learned to talk about because it has such broad universal appeal is when we talk about parents' ability to invest in their families, yes. really what, what we're saying is they're raising, and you're a grandparent, you have, you know, a generation working underneath you already. We're raising kids who are going to be able to work effectively and see working parenthood work and then go do their part in the economy when they grow up. This is not just about like getting home in time to read a bedtime story. This is modeling and helping teach a kid to go do work in the world. To save humanity, which is what their task is going to be. Poor children. (laughs) Thank God they're going to do it. Uh, yeah, I have hope. I have hope, but they need our help. And this is one way that we can be helping them. 
Absolutely. By showing their them that their parents can 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 be contributing to the making the world better and that they are going to do that too. Yeah. Which is the whole point. So how did we get onto this, Lauren? How do we, uh, it was about domestic labor and, and counting unpaid labor Yes, um, and splitting it up with your partner. If you have, yes, them. thank you. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, there's like concrete tips I could give you. So, so make the visit, make the invisible labor visible, um, try to watch out for gatekeeping. So this is, you know, an exercise that you can do with your partner. If you're finding that this is a good moment for a reset and actually, sir, the, the, uh, the reset with childcare right now too, as people, you know, either, either start to have more childcare than they did or have to make a transition because their kids have gotten older in this last year. This also necessitates some of that too. And very often one parent will sort of manage the childcare. No, 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 no. This is an opportunity for both parents. If there are two mm-hmm. to work together, to find a childcare solution that works and then manage it deliberately, at least, you know, together, split that labor up. Um, but, you know, like in my house, this is going to sound so basic, but, you know, it took me years to figure this out. We have a whiteboard on our refrigerator on, and every Sunday night, I write the schedule for the week. And my kids are old enough now that they can participate too in the domestic labor. Hang on, hang on. Yeah. Why is it that you're writing that whiteboard and not your spouse? It's a very, very good question. Um, because can we get him? Can you pull him into this conversation? I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask him a couple <laughs> so of questions. I would this. love to, but he's an essential worker, and so that was a real. I mean, trauma is too big of a word, but it, it was dramatic at least last spring because he yeah. he's, he works at hospital. He's a doctor. He mm-hmm. is gone. He has a new commute because they relocated um, his floor of the hospital so that it could become a COVID recovery unit. Oh, wow. His career has grown in this time. He has done a ton of new research about mm-hmm. COVID protocols and psychiatric patients, published papers. He just got promoted. I mean, it's really like a pretty classic story. And I have emptied the dishwasher more times than I thought I would in my entire life. Right. All right so I've been snarky here with that, uh, that comment. And I apologize if I was no. you or anyone listening about how come you're doing that whiteboard and he's not, but it's a real question, right? Because no, well, he's, he's home on Sunday nights. Like he could do it on Sunday nights. Oh, too. Okay. But the whiteboard is one degree of progress for us because that whiteboard used to live entirely in my head. And now uh, he can add to it. He can see it. If he notices we're out of something, he's okay. going to write it down on there. If he's So it's a shared resource forward. now. It's not just something uh-huh. you're carrying around on your own 100%. If he's that, going that mental burden. to the store to go buy shaving cream, he looks at it and he realizes that we're also out of eggs. I mean, this is like, you know, <laughs> this is basic stuff. But it took me, even doing the work that I do, a really long time to get there. Phew. Well, yeah. so... So if you if you could boil it down to a word of advice for uh, couples of all kinds, you know, parenting partnerships is what uh, my colleague uh, Alyssa Westring and I call them in our book, Parents Who Lead, yeah. uh, you know, whoever it is that's, you know, you're raising children with uh, what what's what would you tell them about the opportunity for reset right now? That this is it, that they're existing in. A, a time and a place where we have this remarkable opportunity. And so many of the patterns that they've fallen into have been because of social norms and policy that did not support them mm-hmm. to have an equal partnership. And so as we're thinking about how to work now, what to ask of our employers, what to ask of our government, remember that it's not your fault if you slipped into some of these old patterns, but this Mm -hmm. is a really good time to reset. It's actually, it's very similar to couples I work with who had unequal access to parental leave after baby. So mom Mm -hmm. took like, so the average FMLA taken by a woman is 8.5 weeks. The average taken by a man is more like one and a half. Mm -hmm. So what does that do? It sets up all kinds of patterns of expertise. And that's clearly not enough, but it sets up patterns of expertise that, you know, once both parents are Mm -hmm. back at their paid work and they Mm -hmm. get home at the end of the day, and sorry, this is assuming sort of a traditional work day, guess who knows how to do everything? It's mom. Guess who wants it done her way? So the status quo just is so much easier to deal with. Um, Let me just remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm talking with Lauren Smith Brody, who's the founder of The Fifth trimester movement and consulting and the author of the book the fifth trimester the working mom's guide to style you haven't gotten to that lauren that's fine style sanity (laughs) and success after baby we have been talking about sanity and success style 
is another conversation for another time. You, um, can, you, so, can, you can have style in ways that, that's not visible to you. That's fine. Okay. Well, uh, let's, let's go back though, to, to what, what we were talking about with respect to how people can use this as an opportunity, how businesses have to use this as an opportunity to, to rethink their approach. What, what else is there that you want to uh, share with our listening audience about what they can do at work? Um, either parent with respect yeah. to how they uh, can help their employers adjust for the benefit of all. So I'm going to add just with the, the idea of unequal parental leaves, the same idea can be applied here that I offer, which is if dad, and this is a heterosexual couple, if dad had less time when mom goes back to work, then dad's on full duty for at least a week, let him jump in, let him become an expert. It's a reset, right? So the same applies now. If you have a partnership in which the woman is trying to get back to speed of work that she was before or the income she was before, this is time for dad, if possible, to take a step back and be home fully for you know an extended paid time off, whatever it is, till that reset happens. In terms of what, what individuals can do in their, in, with their employers to push yes. their for progress. So anytime you negotiate for anything, you're going to feel, particularly if it's around your personal life and for your kids, you're going to feel like it's like super personal. And it's, you know, for me and my personal life, remember, if you're able to speak up, you are probably far more able than a lot of people around you. You have some degree of privilege just letting you do it. Mm. So remember that you're speaking for everybody else who doesn't have a voice and really for everyone with a personal mm. life. And this is not just for parents. This is for anybody who has a personal life need. So when you advocate for these changes, um, you can volunteer to, um, to, to um, guinea pig anything. You know, if someone is, is hesitant to give you the flexibility or the change in schedule or whatever that you need, ask for a trial period. Come with a plan that really satisfies whatever you think their worries are going to be that lets them go to their supervisor, whoever it is who they're going to have to get approval from, that gives them everything that they need to say yes. And then have a trial period, report back, be someone who's sort of like an intrepid, you know, like data gatherer for them to show them what can work. Yeah. Then, I call that experiments. And I've, yeah. been, I've been teaching people how to create experiments for uh, over 20 years now in thinking of themselves as leaders where the, uh, their, their task is to be experimenting in the laboratory of their lives, continually innovating with how they get things done and to be, gathering evidence of progress on their experiments that they consciously and deliberately and intentionally and mindfully design as creating better performance at work and at home and in the community and for themselves personally. And when you, when you think in terms of creating value, not just for you, I need this for me, for my mental health, or I need this because my kid needs X, Y, or Z, but that if I'm able to do this other thing, uh, or take this time or be entirely focused on this other aspect of my life. I'm actually going to be a better asset to the business. And here's how we're going to see that. So let's just try it and see what works. And so you're finding the same thing. It sounds totally. like a hundred percent aligned. Yes. And I, one really specific bit of advice I can give that I've been yes. giving to, the, to the, the lawyers who I coach, and this is, you know, only a small part of my business, but I tell every one of them, you need to have a Google doc that is just for your eyes for now, but every single time you do anything that benefits your firm, your employer, that is not a billable hour, which mm -hmm. already like the billable hours are counted. Anytime you entered, make an introduction to someone that could lead to business. Anytime you talk someone off a ledge so they don't quit. Anytime you take someone out for coffee, make a phone call with them. These, these kinds of soft skills that we think of as not being countable, they all count. And it's amazing how quickly they add up. So just go into that Google doc, yeah. put them down. You'll know what they are. And then when it comes time, you know, if you're having, you know, a sit the one-on-one, -on -one, you know, with, with your senior partner or you just, you know, ad hoc, or if you have an annual review, whatever it is, quarterly review, you have that to draw from. And then what I say to the employers is you got to count that stuff. If somebody has participated in three employee resource groups. And I was coaching one woman who was, she's a single mom of a toddler and she's black. And so she was involved with three ERGs. There was one for like the young associates. There was one for single parents. And there was the, there was like the, the black affinity group. So all three of them, there was a day when she had three of those things to go to. And it's actually pulling her away from her other work, which yeah. is never the intention of the people who had started no. 
those groups. So you got to count that work. And what I say to employers is to the best of your ability, it's almost like if you can count, count it as time and a half, because it will convince people to stay, to be part of a community. It so what do you, what do you get back from the, uh, the partners who are saying, what, pay people for having coffee together to talk about their problems? No, we're not doing that. I happened to the, this work that I do is for a particularly progressive firm that is really open to those conversations. It's kind of, I mean, it blows my mind every time they say, tell us more. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the progress that I have pushed for has over these last couple of years that I've been working with them has, has become policy and it's great. Um, but you know, anyone in any industry, it doesn't have to be lawyers where you're measuring your time in six minute chunks can say when they go into their annual review can count that stuff. And then as we look at annual reviews, particularly coming out of the pandemic, I mean, my God, like everyone thinks that they have been less productive. However, there probably have been new skills that you have learned. There have been ways in which you have contributed that you may not have counted before that you really do need to speak up and count now. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you're probably measuring things, measuring your success in ways that feel really different. But if they kept you in, if they kept your teammates in, if they helped people keep moving forward and not just in stasis, you've, you've done something pretty amazing. It's really accounting for your value. I think that's that's been an important motif in our conversation, which we have to wind down, Lauren. Um, and that is to to see the many ways that you bring value uh, as as a person uh, who has a a broader set of commitments and devotions in their lives beyond uh, the specifics of their um, expected time in their job role. Um, now people who become parents get support wherever they can. In some cases, they get it from their parents or their in-laws asking for a friend, Lauren, Mm -hmm. what, what advice do you have for grandparents? Oh gosh, just to offer, offer, offer as much as you possibly can. Um, you know, there's something wonderful that parents feel when they can hand their baby over or their child over to a grandparent. And this isn't true for every family, but it's true for most that, you know, your kid is safe. And at the, like, even if like, you know, the way they feed them, isn't just the way you would, you know, that kid is feeling loved and there is nothing that is more reassuring. And that lets you then go and focus on the other thing you need to focus on than that. So as much as you can give time and just be there, even if you know, you're not going to offer exactly the same care that, that that parent would need. And then try not to make assumptions about work. Um, work is really different now, even than it was 10 years ago, mm-hmm. certainly really different than it was 20 years ago. And it is for many people much harder to draw those boundaries and to, you know, to say like, I'm not going to, you know, check email after nine o'clock, like, you know, you may also be taking time in the middle of the day to go do something personal, in which case, like maybe you should be checking email after nine o'clock. And so, so try not to yep. pass judgment when you see, um, when you see your kids as parents doing things differently than the way you did, but, but you can always ask them about it. You can say, tell me about that. That looks hard. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, they may be more vulnerable with you than they would be with anyone else. And, mm-hmm. you know, you raise them, you set their norms. And um, in terms of what it means to be a good parent. And so they really want to please you. So try to open them, open dialogue with them rather than, than dictate. It's, it's hard to uh, be conscious of your bias, though, and your, your natural tendency to be making, you know, evaluative inferences about their behavior uh, and, to, and to stay and also to realize that, you know, it's their game, not yours, and that you're there to, you know, simply to be available as a resource. Uh, so I, I will tell my friend about that. Uh, what <laughs> else? What else can you say though about, uh, you know, from a parent's perspective, like a young parent's perspective, about working with their own parents as a as part of their childcare system? Just very briefly before we bring it home. One thing that's new um, that I'm seeing a lot more of in my, it's not new. I mean, obviously in a lot of cultures, this has been the case for a long time, but I'm seeing it more widely accepted now is paying a grandparent for childcare. Whoa. And that, that gets, you know, it's, it's been, I think in part, you know, exacerbated by the pandemic and perhaps yeah. grandparents have not been working, you know, to the same degree for pay they had before and they need the money. And it's, mm. It's actually, it's working uh, much more smoothly than, than I would have thought. Why? Well, um, what is it that's made that work? Well, so 
one thing that can get tricky is that you do tend to need more backup because if you have, you know, grandma caring for baby and grandma needs to go get her mammogram, like, you know, like, of course she needs to. And, and honestly, if you had a nanny in your home, so would she, but if you were in a childcare, a child center based daycare situation, like they have, they, they manage their employees in a way that would allow your kids right. to care that day. So you need, you definitely need a backup. You may even need a backup mm-hmm. to the backup. Um, you have to, you know, I have one client who was telling me that, that her mom just kept offering too much and like, really mm. you have to say to her, like, I really need you to take care of yourself because that's how I know you're going to be best able to care for my baby. So no, actually wow. don't stay late. Like, please go. It's okay. Yeah. Um, so that communication is really, really important. That's really the essence of it is, is, yeah. uh, is that candid communication and uh, vulnerability about what you really need and perhaps even more importantly, what you don't need. Yeah. (laughs) Lauren, uh, we have to wrap up here. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Please tell listeners how they can find out more about the wonderful work you're doing. Oh, thank you. Um, my website is the fifth trimester, all spelled out.com. And um, most of the social media that I do is actually on Instagram. Um, again, my handle is at the fifth trimester. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at Lauren S Brody. Um, and, uh, you can always email me and I would, I would love to be in touch with anyone who thinks I might be able to help them help their employer. What's your, what's your greatest hope for what you can do to help people with the fifth trimester? Oh, I hate. So my greatest hope is that I can help people stay in and make change from within. But I also don't want to pass judgment. If you want to be home, that's fine too, because that also counts. <laughs> well, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's to liberate people. Uh, that's yeah. what I see you're doing and I'm grateful agency. to you for it. I want to give people the agency Power. to make the right decisions for their families um, that they feel economically comfortable with morally comfortable with and that that satisfy the dreams of working parenthood that they had before they before they became them thank you lauren and thank you for listening don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m eastern if you have a question about something you heard on the show just email me friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or our station at business radio at siriusxm.com you can follow on twitter at sxm business i'm at Stu friedman i'm not on instagram yet <laughs> I got it covered um, there for you. Don't worry. You can, you can find edited versions of our shows as free podcasts at totalleadership.org. There's all kinds of other free resources there, videos, book chapters, articles, and more, um, and information about how Total Leadership can help you and your company find harmony, create better performance in all parts of life. Thanks, Patty Hall. Thanks, Chris Tooks, for engineering. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Sirius XM 132.